From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT with your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome to episode 155 of the Killing It Killing podcast. You guys are in great voice for uh, having been out of touch for a while. Uh, taking time off was good for my voice. <laughs> well, see, I was going to say the very best recipe for sounding relaxed and and smooth is to go to Brazil for a couple of weeks. Dave's Dave's taught us all become relaxed and smooth. <laughs> Super chill mode. Got a little tan going on. It's 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 good. It's good. But I'm going to start us off with a fun question. Would you rather be stuck on a broken ski lift or a broken elevator? Well, so I have a, a fear of heights. So for me, it's definitely the elevator. Although it would suck to be in an elevator with the glass wall on the outside of, you know, the CNN building in Atlanta. You're correct. Well, see, I think it's whether you want to see what your challenges are or whether you want to deal with the unknown and the potential like boogeyman factor of it all. Uh, unfortunately, Dave, I can actually vouch for both of these. I've been stuck in both. And and what I will say is, as long as the wind is not blowing and you're not like 40 below kind of a thing, I much prefer the ski lift. The view is much better from up there. So I was totally going to think that it's all weather dependent. If it's not cold and windy, I'm all in on the ski lift because at least it's pretty. And I think in theory, if it was a real problem, you could probably get down. Like, like if it was like, you know, like if, you could probably figure that out, like dangle, like and it's not going to be it's not going to be pretty, but you could probably do it. Whereas a broken elevator, like that feels like that's a whole diehard problem. Yeah, uh, you're, you're there until you're not there. I was stuck in an elevator one time with a, a woman who is very, very nervous. And like we, we'd been stuck for like 14 seconds and she said, I think we should all just take a deep breath and scream. I'm like, hold that thought. Give me an hour. Before. Hold that thought. I will take a deep breath, but <laughs> yeah. later we will need that tension breaker. But uh, I, I will. I will conclude this with the uh, Dwight Schrute office reference. The problem with being stuck in an elevator is eventually you need to establish a pee corner. <laughs> Let's move on with that. We're brought to you this week by our friends at PCmatic, endpoint security built on a zero trust default deny foundation. Finally, a lightweight, simple to deploy, and easy to manage approach to application allow listing. It's the perfect complement to your current security task and no minimums and no annual contracts. Find out more by visiting pcmatic.com MSP today. Our first topic today is uh, about, I guess, a, a, a sign that we have entered the, an actual new kind of war. You've all heard about Doctors Without Borders. Well, now we have Hackers Without Borders uh, who are volunteering, not just in, the, in Ukraine, but uh, in other conflicts, helping nonprofits, non-governmental organizations uh, during these kinds of crises where they know that they're going to be stuck in the middle of organizations trying to, to harm each other with technology. And uh, it, it's interesting, these folks now exist and they show up and this is their first time where they're getting actual press for, for doing this. 
but it's an interesting, to me, it's an interesting thing that it's a natural development of the era that we've been in because we've had cyber warfare going on for, I don't know, at least five years that we're aware of. Uh, but now there's an actual war and cyber is clearly a part of that war. I'm so conflicted on this. Besides the fact that like this is a, a, an issue, I want to I want to zero in right on the idea of hackers without borders, and I want to compare them to doctors without borders. I want to acknowledge that I think both organizations and their intentions are both honorable and uh, laudable. But you know what also happens with doctors without borders? It goes into places where the system, the government system around it, the healthcare system around it, has failed. That is true in this situation too, in that that uh, we have we, we have left the cyber realm so badly regulated and controlled from a law enforcement perspective that we need organizations like this to step in because there's nothing else, and that isn't the way I think it should be. I actually think that there should be some level of law enforcement that actually handles this. And there isn't, and that and because you can't necessarily turn to a level of law enforcement at any, even here, in, like in the U.S. or European countries or stuff, to handle most of this stuff because it is so overwhelming and such a an unregulated, unmanageable space. I think it's a failure that we need organizations like this, despite loving the individual organizations' actions. Well, and I think, Dave, what we're noticing, unfortunately, play out here in the real world, it is not a theoretical front in the battle. It is absolutely indispensable from all sides. And as you said, you know, normally it's one military, a second military, and they wear uniforms and they know who each other is. There's rules of engagement and there are ways that you conduct yourself, not just uh, not, not just militarily, but ethically in these kinds of situations. Anything that is star dot without borders is going to be an extra governmental entity. What I find fascinating is that they've been able to find positive, tangible things they can do to improve people's lives in the middle of a physical war-torn region. And, you know, this is one of those times where it happens so infrequently that I, I have to make a note when it does. Congratulations to Elon Musk for doing something good and actually turning on the satellite internet over Ukraine in a moment's notice to give people connectivity because that was the very first thing that happened in the borders, the physical borders of Ukraine was that anything cellular, anything anything cabled, anything Wi-Fi was instantly disabled to cut off access to the modern world. That is a fundamental technique now. And, uh, you know, we talked a couple of weeks ago, and, and, and Carl, you had some good points on this one. Uh, it's not like our government and their government don't also have offensive capabilities in the cyber realm. It's just that we're not using it yet because we don't want to escalate. So maybe this third party is a less offensive way to get things yeah, in. Yeah, and you know, to, Dave, to your point, yes, it's a failure of the system, but the fact that doctors have to go in is a is clearly a failure of a system. And the fact that the Red Cross has to go in, and the fact that there are not—I'm not saying anything about this specific uh, engagement—but there are 
countries that don't care and will bomb doctors without borders and will bomb the Red Cross and you know destroy their infrastructure. Uh, my brother trained up to be in the communications uh, system of Red Cross in an emergency. They have these amazing trucks with satellite technology and you know all this other really cool stuff. Um, and they try to do all these things, but we've kind of stepped to a new level where you're saying that the, the cybersecurity, the ability to go in and say, we will, we will protect this NGO from both governments because this is a non-political organization, right? So both Ukraine and Russia are being stopped from using cyber warfare against each other. Now, in this particular case, only one side of that battle matters so far, but, you know, it, it's still a thing that, you know, governments will use this for their own purposes, and sometimes the citizens need to be protected from the governments. Well, let me, but let me observe the, the interesting, let me observe the interesting parallel there, Carl, though, because you, you've, you've actually sort of, in a way, reinforced my point, because when we talk about Doctors Without Borders being bombed during warfare, there's actual conventions of warfare and established norms that say that is even more egregious. Whereas when you, if you think about like a Hackers Without Borders situation, if there's retaliation and if there's interactions there, we actually don't have the rules of the road defined enough to say that that is an escalation or that is even more even worse it could very easily be argued that that is just part of the conventional the warfare now that's going on in cyberspace and thus i'm pointing to i'm not necessarily saying like oh this is some failure of the system at, at a level of regulation what i'm actually just sort of observing is is that this is so ill-defined and lack of definition here that it causes so much confusion over what is right what is wrong from a behavior perspective. Well, it, it does, but, and this is where I'll come in and ask a question to you guys, right? We live in a cybersecurity world. We do these things for a living, and we know, A, that there are more threats out there than there have ever been. There are more successful exploits than there have ever been. And unfortunately, we know the source where very many of those things come from. Have you been surprised by how little disruption has been caused by cyber warfare in this two week old process now right as you guys look at it my, my first reaction was the infrastructure is going to go down the power grid's going to go down they're going to hack everything that ever was connected to anything and it's going to cause tidal waves of problems so it's interesting so let me just it, we're, we're almost out of time on this but it's sort of a nice segue to the next topic and that is We've talked many times about the splinter net, especially with regard to China. But, you know, Russia has said, hey, you know, it's OK if we muck around in U.S. elections by putting all this fake stuff up on Facebook. But you know what? That's a one way street. When we don't like what Facebook is doing, we we unplug it. right? And so, you know, the whole thing about the splinter net, there's almost like you know, the, the backbone of the internet was designed to be stable in an unstable environment, right? That a city can disappear and will still get the packets where they need to go. In many ways, that's an analogy for what's going on now. The internet is robust enough that people are finding ways around the, the natural effects of war. Well, 
Well, I mean, we, we are out of time on this one, but let's let's actually use this to transition to the next one and talk a little bit about those specifics as Microsoft finds themselves in the middle of, the, of this particular war. I mean, they, they've actually been having to deal with uh, malware that's specifically found around their systems. Of course, as, as this story has moved on, they've been they've stopped selling services in, you know, to 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 the Russian uh, people and within Russia. Uh, they're among a long list of American corporations that have pulled out. Uh, what I think I think it's it's worth talking about here is, is what are the positions of these companies as they are forced to take sides in a conflict like this? Guys, I'm going to throw it out for discussion. Do you have particular stances on this? I know I do. Well, so the article <laughs> that we point to, uh, you know, Microsoft monitors security and they've got their own little intelligence, you know, threat center and they saw bad traffic and they stopped it and then they found a fix for it and then they reported it and then they realized a hundred percent of it was inside ukraine right and the source was russia and they were like oh, okay so now they find themselves working with the u.s government and the the article which is from uh, zdnet sort of makes an analogy to general motors and ford switching their uh their systems to build tanks and airplanes I don't think that's quite accurate, but it is, again, it's sort of, that's the modern warfare, is that you put up these systems that are supposed to protect stuff, and they do, and to Ryan's point, uh, we don't notice as much disruption as we might have had, except Elon's doing his thing, Microsoft's doing its thing, it's just another day, except there's a war going on. Well, and, and that's, that is the lesson to be taken, right? I'll circle back to a topic we had probably a month ago, maybe it was a little bit more than a month ago, where we discussed the difference between governments and corporations and whether these very large tech corporations were now needing to be regulated as though they were government entities. And that's certainly how they look at themselves in a lot of things. Uh, the reason for that conversation is, well, there are how many countries in the world and then there are how many countries uh, companies that are providing technology across all of the borders to the entire globe it, it is a naive privilege that we've enjoyed in the last 25 years in our industry that there has not been the potential for this kind of a global taking sides and really disrupting business based on national conflicts, right? We've had we've had local regional conflicts, we've had ethnic conflicts, we've had all kinds of terrible things, but we have not had geographic warfare in a number of years. And so we all built up the internet in the interim thinking, I'll cross the borders, borders are irrelevant, I don't have to do a thing. Guess what? You don't have the privilege anymore to sit on the sidelines and not take sides, right? Uh, you mentioned Microsoft. I personally have dealt with um, cybersecurity companies who are like, uh-oh, how do we message this as well as how do we deal with this technologically down into if you are doing software development and you are nearshoring or offshoring, there's a tremendous economy for both of those in both Russia and in Ukraine, and those have been radically disrupted, even though technologically they can still totally do their jobs. But now geopolitically, they can no longer do their jobs. The industry 
has to start making decisions. I, I think it's important to acknowledge that this is the first European conflict because let, let's observe Yemen, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan. There's, there, there's a long list of, of conflicts that have happened. This is the first European one. And I think, and I'm, I'm, I want to observe it from that perspective. I'm not going to dive into judgments around that. I'm just going to say this one is European, and so we are treating it differently than those other ones. Not debating that. Let's now move on to what it means on these countries. Uh, what I what I actually will, will observe is is like, look, I, I'm going to put my little bit of American hat and go to like, these companies are American companies. You're traded on American public markets. You built your business. You are an American company, and. Uh, you are not necessarily completely geographically independent. That's not how this works. Uh, there are very clear lines. Uh, if you have, they are having to pull back because they have crossed into, they do business in countries that are not aligned with American interests. And when, when, when the political system changes, that was a risk you chose to take uh, to and you made money during that time frame. Well, now it is time to undo that. I wonder if there's an index, if there's a nice little spreadsheet of uh, countries that do business in China, you know, unchanged, do business in China with these changes, uh, completely give in to the government. And then with regard to Russia, and then with regard to uh, the European Union and petty dictators in miscellaneous countries, right? Um, and, and some of it is, you know, Twitter made these changes, but not those changes because they already had certain policies in place. And Facebook made certain changes and not others. And some of them pulled out altogether. You know, it's interesting. We always hearken to the science fiction where in the future, all corporations are evil. They run the world without regard to governments. But sometimes corporations are good. And that needs to work its way into science fiction as well. Well, sure. <laughs> it does. And, and this might be a time for cor corporations to step up and show that they can do good things. But, you know, Dave, that's it's not a it's not a yes or no. It's pick sides. Right. Like the 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 choice that you're describing to them is if you are an American company and you say, uh, I have operated extra regulatory around the world and nobody has had, you know, people try to regulate and we all know uh, how effective or ineffective those things have been up until now. But now it's not about the government saying you may or you may not, right? Carl, your example of how they, how Russia just shut off Facebook. Okay, that's, that's one type of a thing. But when Microsoft has to say, uh, I choose sides, it's not will I help or won't I? You cannot be a conscientious objector, objector in this situation. You have to actually pick a side and that may radically affect your economic position and your ability to sell. I've been kind of fascinated by how many corporations have just up and pulled out all their operations from Russia, not, not just technology firms, many firms, many industries. And by the way, if, if you've got listeners who are saying, oh, this, th these guys are debating stuff that doesn't apply to me, well, take a quick look down your vendor list and understand where the home countries are of many of those vendors. Uh, I can tell you from my own personal experience, my business was approached to, by, a, by a business you know, to, to do work 
That was not an American company, and I ended up not doing that business because I knew there might be some risks on this front. It happens to small companies too, and it's about the vendors you're working with. You're going to you do need to understand that there are limits of what it means to buy from those companies and or what it means to do business with those companies on all sides. You may not be listening in the US too, so that's all part of it. We are a global community. The SB IT community, one of the first things I saw when the tanks started rolling was a post from a connection uh, in Kiev who said, of all the challenges I thought I'd face when I started my business, war was not on the list. And we are shut down as of today. I don't know when I will see my employees again. So, it, you know, it's real. Yeah, to, to your point, Dave, in a very sincere way, yes, it does affect you and you do need to start paying attention. Um, let's shift off of this topic and go into our third topic. So you guys know that I am a particular nerd when it comes to the, the idea of disruptive innovation. It's not the only one that I am on, but that one too, right? Uh, the innovator's dilemma, the innovator's solution. You're familiar with that idea. The basic underlying premise is big companies are slow and bureaucratic and very difficult to change and to modernize. Therefore, new technologies that are deployed in a market give smaller, faster, more agile organizations the capability to compete and to win against entrenched market leaders simply because of the functionality. Now, we're going to point to an article here from the MIT Technology Review. It, it's a bit of a read. It's fascinating, and, and I'm curious to get some of your kind of insight on it. The basic gist of this article is you're right. Technology does create a different form of competitive advantage and whoever adopts it well can outcompete other people in their industry. Well, guess what? Many of the very largest, very most established market leaders, the behemoths in every industry, they read the same book we did and they have adopted the technology. And as a result, the observation from this analyst is, uh, technology is no longer the fuel for innovation and disruption in other industries. It is now the fortress wall that makes it impossible for other smaller upstarts to come in and compete. Uh, guys, what are your thoughts on this angle of analysis? I almost want to say there's nothing new going on here. Because and, and by the way, Clayton Christensen and, and the innovators, Delena, as uh, uh, on the short list of reading lists that we have over at killingit.smallbizthoughts.com. So go go check out our reading list. You know, it's always been the case. Big corporations have invested, it used to be millions, now it's billions, in the technology that is their cash cow. And they will do everything they can to stop further innovation. So true disruption has to come into a place where somebody can do the little thing that they're ignoring so much better that they get a foothold or a toehold at least and they start to grow that was true with oil that was true with steel right i mean pick any technology and now it's true with chips and other things if you were in if this were a story about the medical community you'd say well they've invested billions of dollars in this drug so they want to be able to set aside 20 years where nobody can create a generic you can't do that in technology, right? So there is no there is no 20 years. You got to build your own 20 years. So what looks like the big companies 
forestalling is simply they want to get as much out of their investment as they can before the interruption comes along. There's as much disruption as ever. It just is having a harder time being as visible in technology. That doesn't mean it's any different than anything else. I had three observations the moment I saw this article. The first was, because I saw it too, and my first observation was, oh, this is catnip for Ryan. <laughs> so I just, I just want to observe for everyone that, oh yeah, I read this one and immediately knew that Ryan was going to bring it to the table. The second thing that I wanted to, to say is, is for, it's a good read and you should read it. I think the lecturer is, uh, an analyst, is too dismissive of antitrust. Uh, the, the common making is, is that stronger antitrust enforcement might make a difference. I am, we can observe and point to the large tech companies literally crushing competition in the womb before it's even allowed to, to mature and bring them on by buying them out, destroying them with their, their market position. I think you're being a little dis disruptive of antitrust. <laughs> so that would be my second observation. But the third, and the one I, I think is worth people spending some time on is, is this positioning of it being a fortress and being this, this end state is because of the maturity of the space that we've moved from being an afterthought to a core component of the way business is delivered, particularly when you present it from the perspective of digitalization and, and the need to deliver e-commerce, to deliver electronically, to deliver to people the way they consume now. Yeah, we're embedded in everything as technology and technologists. And so that's a sign of our maturity and also with maturity, innovation often slows. <laughs> that, the two, that you have reached a level of stability to the market. So thus you will not necessarily always have massive rapid changes because there are standards now to, to rest on. See, and, and I'll, I'll go this uh, the other direction, right? I remember sitting in a very large room at a very large event one time listening to Steve Ballmer, and they were talking about, it was a conversation about the, uh, the, the competitive threats that technology companies face. Back then, Microsoft was dominant in almost everything that they were doing, and people were concerned like, hey, how could you possibly stay on top forever? Have you heard about this thing called the innovator solution? And his comment was, it's not like we don't know how to innovate too. We will run into competition. And then when we meet the competition that we cannot beat, we will innovate something new and we will outpace them again. Now, the reason that I think that's relevant is that the point they're making in this article is the bigger they are, the slower they go is no longer true because of the essential quality of what technology does. Right. If you deploy all your systems to the cloud and you use uh, self-configuring virtual servers and you use uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence, even the behemoth can sniff out the tiny little toehold and go out compete the upstart from day one. Right now, the, the article talks about nuance uh, and audio processing technology that once was mega and then just got out competed, outspent by some of the very large players. I think what you are about to see is very, very large organizations who as soon as you get your pre series A, any funding at all for what you think is a cool technology, they're going to come in and go squish because I've got a skunk works team that's based on all of this agile technology. 
I, I am no longer slow. And, and this is what kills me about it. That was the value proposition of technology. What we said was technology will eliminate bureaucracy and human slowness. And it worked. Oh, shit. It might have worked too well. Well, the other piece of it is, you know, we always talk about the, uh, the growth being so fast and getting faster all the time, right? And, you know, right immediately before the pandemic, I spent a year traveling the world and giving a presentation on the exponential century and how there's going to be all this exponential growth. And you could see, even today, you can see exactly what's going to happen next in the metaverse. But but we're not ready for it. And and human beings have to kind of be ready for it. It's almost like, you know, the QR code, which is super, super old, suddenly it became the useful technology because there was something that human beings could look at and say, oh, this might actually make it useful. This might actually make my life a little bit better. And so there's lots and lots of technology that we can look at. All of the advancing you know, technology, uh, we can see farther than we can touch. And we know it's there. And, and it's in some ways, it's just waiting for the killer app. Well, you're going to get me started on the metaverse, but that's a whole other no, topic. No, I mentioned <laughs> I, you, you don't get to talk about it. <laughs> No, especially <laughs> it's going to be my new digital transformation. No, no, no. Uh, <laughs> no well, see, but I will, I, I will, I will tie that topic in because you know I would, right? Uh, did the promise of digital transformation is once you are digital, now you are no matter how big you are, you are as big as everybody else, and you are as fast as everybody else. When I'm the little upstart guy, I love that story. When I'm the established market leader and I can use that against the little guy, I don't want him to be as fast as me. Exactly. Sadly and happily, that is the end of episode 155 of the Killing It, Killing it podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Killing It podcast. Please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the podcast places. Join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business.